told him this morning, I'd never heard that song before, and uh, that was my first time hearing it. So I, I liked it. Gregory, thanks for introducing that one to us, man. I, that was a new one for me. If you have your Bibles with you, would you go ahead and grab them and turn with me to John uh, 13? That, that's where we're going to be focusing our time uh, together this morning. We're back in the Gospel of John. We'll be there looking at verses 18 uh, through 35 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a paperback one near you. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. So would you stand with me now? We're going to jump in here this morning. Stand with me as we turn our focus, as we sort of fix our, our, our eyes and tune our ears for these next few moments to hear, to hear the Word of God. This is John 13, starting in verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen, for, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I I just want to ask you to come and speak this morning. I want you to come and and move in my heart. I mean, selfishly, that's... That's what I want. I want want you to come and by your spirit to just to work on me today. To open your word to me that I might understand it, that I might drink it in and and know you better. Lord, I pray that you would be at work amongst your people here this morning. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Lord, would would you just renew and restore us this morning? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know um, if you all realize this, uh, 
But over the course of the last year, as God has continued to kind of grow and expand uh, his kingdom, and, and specifically his church here at Rivercrest, uh, one of the things that we have seen, and I don't know why this is exactly, but one of the things that we have seen is he has brought into this particular fellowship a lot of uh, teachers, okay? We have elementary teachers, we have middle school teachers, we have high school teachers, we have uh, private school teachers, we have public school teachers, we have homeschool teachers, we've got, we've got them all. We have a bunch of teachers here, and that's that's... That's a really encouraging thing to me um, because, because I honestly don't know of, a, of another people group within our present Western culture who has more potential influence for the future of our Western culture. We have been surrounded with, all right, we've been blessed with a bunch of just what, what I would call frontline culture makers in this church because, because a teacher's potential influence is really it's really impossible to, to calculate. It's, it's the same with coaches or with mentors or with anyone who spends any amount of their time serving with young people in that sort of capacity. You know, you know Jesus was a teacher. We've seen that in this gospel. We see that throughout the gospel of John. And we saw it back in chapter 3 when Nicodemus, who was also a teacher, came to Jesus and he said, we know that you are a Teacher, and then and then we saw it in, in in chapter eleven when Mary and Martha refer to Jesus as the teacher. In fact, that's how Martha refers to Jesus when she sends for Mary to come and meet him. She doesn't say his name. She doesn't say, "Hey, Jesus is looking for you." She says, "The teacher is here, and he is calling for you." And Mary knows she knows without having to hear the name that that's who her sister is talking about. And then even right here in John 13, Jesus, over look at verse 13 there where we, we hit. It says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's saying this. He, he's telling his disciples that I am teaching you right now. Like, I know you came to celebrate the Passover. I know you came to sit at this table with me and share a meal, but you're about to get a lesson. I am going to do some teaching even now, even in this moment, just within hours, okay, within hours of the crucifixion at this point, Jesus is teaching them. He's teaching them right up until that last moment. And that's what we see here. And that's what we're going to see for the next couple of chapters in the Gospel of John, that even at this last meal, Jesus is teaching them. And like any good teacher or, or like any parent will tell you, it's never enough to just say it. I mean, you can tell you can tell them a thousand times, but, but you've got to show them. To tell them might be enough to pass the test the next day in class, but the lessons that truly endure in this life, right, the ones that really stick with us are the ones that are not only said, but those that are demonstrated. It's those that are displayed for us to see. And so that's the first thing that I want us to see today in this passage is how Jesus displays his love for us. And there's three ways that we're going to see uh, we're, we're going to see that here. The first way, and, and we looked at this uh, back at the early part of this chapter, okay? Andrew shared with us two weeks ago on verses 1 through 17. And what we saw there, right, that was Jesus washed their feet. That's the first thing. He washed their feet. It was him. He was taking the posture of the lowest of servants in the house, performing the lowest of tasks for those people who were closest to him in the world. It's him humbling himself. If, if you weren't here, you can and, and you should. You should go back and listen to that on the podcast. Andrew gave a great message about this, this 
scene in Jesus' ministry where he humbles himself and washes his disciples' feet. And what we saw there and what we see now is is that this display of love is, is in the demonstration by Jesus for us that love serves. This is the way he shows it, that love serves. And since we know ourselves a little bit, I'm willing to hope that you all have some sort of introspection, that you know your own hearts in some way. I know mine. Uh, that, that we know that, that this is not how we're naturally, this is not how our hearts are naturally bent. It's not how we naturally tend to think. Our natural leaning is toward our own interests. The way that we tend to think is towards our own comfort, to our own benefit, to our own well-being, to our own future, making sure that we have things laid out for ourselves going forward. That's the natural leaning of our hearts. We saw it with the disciples. In fact, we, we see it throughout the ministry of Jesus. If you were to turn over to Mark 9, you don't have to turn there, but what you would see is there the evangelist it gives us a glimpse of the hearts of men when he shows the disciples of Jesus engaged in a debate, okay, they are arguing with one another. These are the disciples of Jesus. These are his best friends, the ones closest to him, the ones who have, who have walked with him, and they are arguing with one another about which of them was the greatest. All right, if you're doing your New Testament reading, some of you, it's been so incredible to see some of the, I mean, I'll just be honest, I hate social media, but I've been encouraged this week through social media, seeing different posts of people doing the, the five by five by five reading challenge this year, the New Testament reading challenge. If you're not in that, you're a week late. It's okay, just jump in, all right? It's not that far, but this week, if you were reading in, in Mark 9, you would have seen that scene. You would have seen them traveling from Galilee up to Capernaum. They were talking with one another, and their topic of conversation, if you were to read through the Gospel of Mark, their topic of conversation up to that point, they have seen Jesus feed two multitudes of people with miraculous food, both 5,000 and 4,000 on the side of a hill. They have seen Jesus walk on water as if he were walking on dry ground at that point. We have seen Jesus quiet a storm at that point. We have seen him open the eyes of the blind. And their topic of conversation is not about how great Jesus is. It's about which one of them is the greatest. It's who among them is the greatest. It's always interesting to me how just being in the proximity of greatness can inflate our egos. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I see it in my own heart. Like, when my kid, I'll, I'll brag on my kid for just a second. Last season, they had a soccer game, and it was two to one. We're losing two to one. And my boy takes a shot, and it hits the back of the net, and I, you, and I felt like I had just accomplished the greatest task in the world. There's my DNA, man, scoring goals, and everybody's clapping. Look at him, and I'm going, yeah. Yeah, look at him. He's awesome, right? He was, he was, and we all jumped around. It was crazy. And you know, I felt like I was awesome. I didn't do anything. I didn't step on the back. I'm not allowed to step on the field. It's against the rules. I'm not allowed to play. I'm not allowed to get out there. He did that. When, when our kids do well in school, when, when they get promoted in their job, when they graduate on time, right? We celebrate them. We can be tempted to think that all of those things mean that we are really smart, that the accomplishments of someone else somehow justifies us and builds us up. Listen, I have a lot of friends, and I'm going to be careful not to make eye contact with anybody in this room, okay, because this one's going to sting, who, who walked with their heads held extremely high this week because I just looked at somebody who, because, 
because a group of kids that they have never met playing a game that they have never played went to California and won a football game. Now, all of a sudden, I am, yeah, I'm going to look at this plant right now. Now, all of a sudden, we have won the game. Well, you didn't win anything. You didn't do anything. You didn't even get on the plane. That was the one Gamecock fan that I made eye contact with right there, and he just, amen. I'll never get a bigger amen from him than that right there. You didn't do anything, but now we won. No, no, we didn't win. This is, I wonder if, can you imagine the disciples walking up the hill after this and going, you see how we fed those 5,000? You see how we fed those 4,000 people? You see how we were in that boat? When Jesus came and quieted the storm, man, we told that storm to be quiet. Now they're arguing over which one of them is the greatest. We have to be very careful with that. Pride has a way of creeping into our hearts even when we least expect it. Because what did Jesus say in Mark 9, 35? In the same chapter, you know what his response was? He was to say, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. That's what Jesus had to say to that. Be servant of all. You see, with Jesus, it's just as uh, there's a, a man named Eric Geiger has said, with Christ as our example, we mimic our Savior who turns the power system on its head. You see, he flips the entire paradigm of humanity. For everybody else, it's win the game and you're the best. With him, it's like maybe if you let them win, you're the best. Maybe if you die to yourself in this moment, you're at the top. Maybe. This is what he said in John 13, 14. Look at that. It's on the same page. He said, If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then he said, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. You see, he didn't just say it. He didn't just say it. He didn't just stand up and say, Listen, you've got to be people who serve one another. Go do it. I mean, he could have. He's the God of the universe. He created it all. If he tells you to jump, your answer is what? It's how high? How high do you want me to jump, Jesus? No, he said, see what I just did? Go and do that for one another. Go and do as I have done for you. That's what Jesus does. That's the first display of love is that he washed their feet. The second display is that he prepared their hearts. Look at that in verses 18 and 19. Look, look at that. He said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And look at 19. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it takes place, you may believe that I am he. One of the, one of the great lines out of the Star Wars movies, a, movie, a, a line that I think, I think is in every single one of the movies, is when they are about to enter into the fight, when they are about to storm the gates, right, to jump into some crazy plan to, to save the universe, and one of the characters, and like every single one of them will say, what? I have a bad feeling about this. I have a bad feeling about this. I th- I, the only one I ever hear is Han Solo saying, I have a bad feeling about this. You see, the odds are against them. The number of enemies that they are about to go against is too great, and there's a solid chance that they're all actually going to die in the cold vacuum of space, right? It's actually quite terrifying. But, but that's not what Jesus says right here. He doesn't say, listen, I have a bad feeling. He knows it's about to go bad. 
He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows he's going to be wrongfully arrested. He knows that they are going to put a crown of thorns on his head and then smash it into his skull. He knows that they're going to beat him within an inch of his life. He knows that they're going to make him carry the crossbar up to the top of the, ha- uh, top of the hill outside the city. He knows they're going to parade him through the streets while the Romans mock and laugh and jeer at him. He knows that they're going to nail him to that tree, that they're going to hoist him up into the air. He knows that he's going to be naked and exposed in front of every single one of them while the crowd mocks and the soldiers gamble over his clothing. He knows that he is going to die. He knows that a soldier is going to come with a spear and ram it into his side, spilling blood and water on the ground. He knows this is going to happen. He knows that within an hour, within hours of this meal, that those things are going to happen. And so in love, he's preparing his disciples for it because he knows that it's going to rock them. He is a good teacher. He's a loving teacher. And like a good teacher, he doesn't just take them down to the dock and chunk them out in the water and hope that they can swim. No, he, he enters into the shallow end with them. He brings them into the water. He teaches them how to swim, teaches them how to paddle around because he knows that the sea is about to get real rough around them. And he knows that their only hope in that moment is to believe, as he says, that I am he. But by the way, that translation, if you look at it, it would, it would say in your, in your Greek that I am. It's not counted as one of the I am statements, but that's what he's saying. He washed their feet. He prepared their hearts. And then thirdly, in the love that only God can show, he reached out to the resistant, okay? We see it in verses 21 through 30, where Jesus not only gives Judas a seat of honor at the table. If you look at this scene, you've got John, that's the disciple Jesus loved, who's laying beside Jesus. You've got Judas, who's able to take the morsel from his hand, meaning he's the one sitting on his left side, which is a seat of honor in that time. You've got the one who's going to betray him sitting right there beside him in a seat of honor. In fact, even the dipping of the morsel and giving it to someone, that was a, that was a sign of a special friendship. It's like, it's like me taking the cut of steak and getting the best piece with just the, the perfect texture and the perfect amount of fat because let's just be honest, it needs a little bit of that to taste right. And, it's, and me saying to my son, I want you to try this. You don't give that piece to the dog. You give that to someone you love. This is the best bite on the whole thing, and I'm giving it to you. This is what Jesus was doing for Judas. This is what he's doing. That's what that whole scene is about. It's far more than just identifying his betrayer to John, who seems either so shocked that he he couldn't believe it, or he's so confused by this whole thing that he can't catch up with what's happening around him. How could it be Judas? I know we hate him because we know the end of the story, but this was their boy, man. This is who they've been walking around with. In fact, uh, most uh, scholars and theologians would tell you Judas is probably the most educated out of all of them. That's that's why you always know his daddy's name, because he had a daddy whose name was worth mentioning. 
the son of Simon Iscariot, right? That's Judas. He's the, he's the top dog in the group. He's the best dressed. He's probably the smartest. He's the one that everybody looks at. He's the one Jesus trusted with the money bag. Like we know him as Judas the betrayer. They knew him as probably the best and the brightest of us. He's going to betray you? John is so shaken by this whole thing that he doesn't even share the information. You don't see him stand up and go, this is the guy. You, do you? No, John just sits there dumbfounded that it could possibly be him. It was Peter who said, ask Jesus. You don't even see him tell Peter, hey, listen to this guy. Let's get him. Let's get him before this thing happens. Let's stop this. He's right here in our midst. I mean, he might be the best among us, but he's not going to beat all 11 of us. He is shocked by this. So you think Jesus knows that if they're shocked by that, that they're going to be shocked by what's about to come for him. That he's showing this incredible love for them, even in this moment, by preparing their hearts, by reaching out to Judas with these, with these marks of love and friendship, just in many ways saying, don't do this. Don't do this. But he also knows who, who he has chosen. And that's the second thing in this passage. Jesus gave us a display of love. Now he gives us the demand to love. Look back at verse 30. We're told there that after receiving the morsel of bread, he, that's, that's Judas, immediately went out and it was night. You can see him sort of vanishing, right? You can see the door shutting. He's going out into the darkness of night. We had a, a couple of years ago, I was, my, my, our youngest got a little scooter uh, for Christmas and I was, he, we didn't know if he'd be able to ride it, but he was awesome on this thing. And so he's just riding it out on Christmas day and I'm sitting outside and he He's riding it in the light of the driveway, and then he just vanished into the darkness. And the video was actually kind of surreal. It was like, man, we're, he's gone. <laughs> we need to go find him, right? Because that's what happens when you enter into the darkness. You just kind of fade. You can't be seen. You become almost invisible. This is what we see happening with Judas. Immediately he went out, and it was night. And you can just kind of see it happen. He's turning at that moment from the light of the world into a darkness that if, if we look at the timeline... We'll never see the light of day. As Kent Hughes has described this scene, he said, at that moment, an immortal soul committed suicide. But for those who were with him, for those men sitting there, confused, sitting around the table with their minds racing and their jaws hanging open that this is actually happening, Jesus is giving them a new commandment. Look there at verse 34. Here's what we're calling the demand to love. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, that you love one another. You know, that's what makes it new. It's not the demand, it's, it's not the call to love. The call to love is as old as the, as the covenant with God. It's the, the, the command to love is as long as, as old as humanity has been in existence. That's not what makes it new. What makes it new is the object of the love. You see, this doesn't undo the moral law. You know what the moral law is, right? It's the Ten Commandments. That's what we call the moral law, what we find in those Ten Commandments. It's God's law for all people at all times, in all places, in all circumstances. It's the standard of God's holiness that He holds His people to, that we're all commanded to uphold. Jesus had summed up the Ten Commandments with two, right? He said that you would love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your mind. And then He said that there was a second commandment that was like it. He said that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus summed up the moral law. That hasn't changed. 
Those commandments are not being undone right here. Jesus is not casting those things aside. Now, I want to tell you that there are those who will, who will tell you that today. In fact, there's some pretty prominent voices in evangelicalism that are telling people that today, that the moral law has no binding on us at all. We don't believe that. We don't. We still believe that the moral law, that the Ten Commandments, that Jesus is called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbors as yourself, those are still binding on us as the people of God. But then he said this. He said, I give you a new commandment. I give you a new commandment to love one another. It's a new object of our love, a new unique form of this for the people of God, that we would love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So I also want to say it's not just the object, but it's also the extent, okay? In our culture today, when we say love, a lot of times that just means tolerate. Jesus didn't just tolerate the disciples, okay? He wasn't just okay with them existing. Love one another, not in abstraction, not in however you feel like, as I have loved you. It's a very specific type of love there that he's talking about. He's not commanding them to be friends. He's not showing them to show some cordial affection. He's calling them to show the type of love that he has shown them and the type of love that they are going to see displayed in the very, very near future. It's that what we call agape love that has as its most distinguishing characteristic a lack of self-interest. It's a sacrificial love. It's a forgiving love. It's a serving love. A few years back, I read the story of a man named Dave Carnes. I don't, I, don't, I don't know Dave Carnes. I've never even met Dave Carnes, but I heard his story, and it really resonated with me. Um, you see, in September of 2001, Dave Carnes was working as an accountant in a, at his desk in Connecticut. Um, they're, they're just in his desk, doing his job. But for 23 years before that, Dave Carnes had served as an active in active duty as a part of the United States Marine Corps. And on the morning of September 11th, he was watching his television, and he saw the events that were unfolding in New York City and feeling a, feeling a need to go and do something. And being close enough to where that was realistic, he jumped in his car and, and raced to Manhattan, arriving at ground zero after the collapse of both the North and the South Tower uh, of the World Trade Center. And since he had his military fatigues and he wore all his stuff, they didn't tell him to leave. That was, he played that card. He said, I'm a, I'm a Marine. He's got all his things. He was allowed to stay, even though they were making everybody get out, get out of there. And so he's there in the smoke, there in the fire, and he joined in the search. And, and, and while he was doing they connected with another Marine. And the two of them began just sort of walking through the rubble, uh, searching, seeking to, to save those who had been lost. And, and so the story goes that after an hour of searching, uh, they heard the faint sound of tapping on pipes and people and people shouting for for help. Okay, two two men had been trapped in an elevator shaft uh, for nine hours at that point. And they were completely incapable of of freeing themselves, of being saved by themselves. They, they were they were doing the only thing they could do. They were crying out, making a bunch of noise, and crying out for help. Those two men, uh, a man named Will Jimeno and John McLaughlin, were ultimately found. Uh, they were pulled from the pile. Uh, because an accountant from Connecticut took off his suit, put on his rescue fatigues, and stepped into the mess, stepped into the smoke, into the heat, into the wreckage, into the death, into the destruction, into the despair, and into the darkness of Ground Zero. That's an incredible story. 
that one person could jump in their car, travel to the city, and two other people might be saved because of those actions. It's a great reminder for us. It's a story that should be told, one that reminds us that just one person, the actions of just one person can totally change the trajectory of another person's life. But it's a reminder for us, especially for Christians, of what Jesus has done for us. You see, we were the ones who were buried beneath the depths of our despair and sorrow and sin. We were the ones who were trapped in our sin and misery with no chance of pulling ourselves up out of the pit. As I read this week, we were without hope until the Holy One clothed Himself in humanity to rescue us, to become sin for us on the cross. You know, Paul reminds us of what Jesus did. And we, we'd, be, we'd be foolish not to consider this. in Philippians 2. And you don't, have to, you don't have to turn there, but I do want you to hear this. So if you've tuned out everything else you've heard this morning, just tune back in for just a minute and a half here. He writes this. This is Paul's charge to the church at Philippi. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how you and I are called to love one another. This is how we, as a people, are called to serve one another, just as the Son of Man has served us, remembering that even He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You see, this is how the light continues to shine in the darkness today. This is how the church stands today and demonstrates its love for Christ and our allegiance to Him it's in how we love one another. Free from the need to earn anything, we're now free to serve one another in love because Jesus, well, because Jesus has first served us. You see, you are, you are the light that Jesus has left behind to point others to himself. That's what the church is. We are, you are, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We talked about that this morning in the, in the essentials class, right? We talked about you are an embassy. You are members of a new kingdom. You are, you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven here on earth as an embassy, as a light, testifying to the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God in Christ. That's what the church is. That's who you are as his disciples. Some of us... Some of us need to take off our suits and we need to change into our rescue fatigues. We need to take off our masks and wrap ourselves in a towel of serving one another with gladness. We need to wash one another's feet. We need to, we need to show this love to the world, a love that is honestly, it's a love of holy recklessness. We have to enter into the pit knowing that Jesus has already carried us out of it. If you want to see the world 
come to know Jesus, can I just tell you the best and easiest way? Show them Jesus in how you live. Show them Jesus in how you love one another. Jesus gave us this display. He did it for us that we might carry the light, that we might be the light in the world today. God help us in that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. Jesus, we praise you today that you came into the pit, that you came into the rubble, that you came into the darkness, that you breathed in the the filthy air of this planet, that you came and you you endured the weather and the that you came and you became man that you suffered that humiliation as the creator of all things to come and save us. Lord, that you risked your reputation in the cosmos to come and associate with someone like me. That you, for even just a moment in time, would call me friend, would call me brother, would call me a beloved child. Lord, I can't repay you for that. All I bring to you is shame on your name. And yet you still love me. You still love us. Lord, help us to show that to the people around us. Help us to be willing to get dirty for the people around us. Help us to be willing to be tired for the people around us. Help us to be willing to suffer for the people around us. Lord, help us to love with a recklessness that you have shown us in Christ. Forgive us for failing in that. Be with us today as we go forth. Help us to live this. In Jesus' name, amen.